Well, hey everyone. Welcome to episode 318 of F-Stop, Collaborate and Listen with your host, Matt Payne. On today's episode, I had the utmost pleasure of speaking with one of my favorite Canadian nature photographers, Jason Pettit. Jason's been recommended by our listeners and former guests about a billion times, and when you look at his work, you'll really understand why. We get quite personal in this chat, learning all about Jason's approach to making personally meaningful work, and we cover a myriad of fun and philosophically stimulating subjects. So sit back and enjoy. Before we dive in, I want to ask y'all a question. Are you looking for a great community to share your work and get honest feedback? Social media has become so hard to get any eyeballs on your photos, and I wouldn't exactly call grandma calling it a banger super helpful for personal growth. If you're looking for an alternative, I think you should join me and many other photographers over on Nature Photographers Network. NPN is a fantastic community of great photographers from all levels and they're just super thoughtful, kind, and genuine with their feedback. I can't recommend it to you more. NPN is more than this though, and all of the benefits of joining are numerous. They have awesome Ask Me Anything events, free webinars from some of your favorite photographers, and becoming a member unlocks discounts and things that you probably are looking to get already, like Helicon Focus, or some great post-processing tutorials. Joining NPN basically pays for itself. Just head over to npn.link forward slash fstop to join. You can use the code fstop10 for a 10% discount. That's npn.link forward slash fstop. I can't wait to see you there. Okay, let's get to this week's episode with Jason Pettit. All right. Jason Pettit, it is so awesome to finally have you on the podcast. Hey, Matt. Good to be here. Finally, I've been listening to the podcast for a long time, so it's it's a really cool thing to be on it. Yeah, of course, of course, of course. I am a... Me and a lot of other people included are a huge fan of your photography. There's just something about it that's very personal, very evocative, very unique and i think you're definitely one of my favorite photographers right now great well i'm i'm glad that makes me happy that's one of my main goals is to be able to uh get that across my photography so people are seeing it then i must be doing something right yes 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 well for people who aren't familiar with you and your photography why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself sure my name is Jason Pettit. I live in a little village called Bloomfield on an island of Prince Edward County on the north shore of Lake Ontario in Canada. Um, I got a wife and two teenage kids and a big St. Bernard I live with in my small house. It's pretty full. Uh, by day, I uh, work for the city of Belleville, just north of here. It's a municipality. I work in the planning department, kind of overseeing uh, developments, um, how they connect to water and sewer and stormwater management and things like that. It's not super exciting to talk about, but <laughs> it's what I do. So I'm not a full-time photographer. <laughs> I'm an amateur photographer. I do it when I have time, which is most of the time when I'm not working. Yeah, and uh, we have something in common because 
I happen to know a little bit about planning. I'm the chair of the planning commission here where I live, so I'm familiar with all the hard work that people in planning departments have to go through in terms of thinking into the future and figuring out whether or not a location is suitable for development and things like that. So fun times. Yeah, no, I, you get it. It gets harder and harder. I'm sure it's the same where you are, where uh, all these new developments are pushing the envelope and it's getting more and more controversial all the time. But. Oh, yeah. it's Pretty much every week it's someone is really mad because someone wants to build something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's about it. Nine times out of ten, it's something about NIMBYism. But. Yep, 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 yep. I have to teach people what that means all the time. Not in my backyard. Right, I should have clarified. <laughs> oh, that's okay. Well, can you tell us what it's like uh, to live in Prince Edward County? What is life like there? Well, um, it's hard for me. I'll say what it is from my own point of view. I've lived here my whole life. I'm 47 now, so it's quite a while. Uh, it's changed a lot since I first started living here to to now. Uh, you know, in the beginning, it's a quiet rural farming community. It was pretty depressed economically. There was nothing going on. It was a ghost town when I was a kid. But it had a lot of beautiful countryside and being basically an island, uh, we're surrounded by water. So that nowadays draws a lot of tourism because some of that waterfront is actually white sand beach on a lake which is fairly rare oh. so we have the world's largest baymouth sand dune uh freshwater sand dune it's nothing like death valley there's not a lot to compare there but for a lake it's pretty big uh, but other than that yeah and moving <laughs> fast forwarding into the more common era the, the tourism has really taken off here uh, we've seen the housing prices go crazy everybody wants to be here now the pandemic just put the pedal to the metal on that one overnight oh, overnight yeah. it just went crazy in 2020 we were one of the only communities that were still mostly open to be able to do things like um at this time in Ontario, we had this color code for opening. So red, the community's locked down. You can't even leave your house. All the way to green, where you can leave your house and in limited ways go to a restaurant, something like that. So in 2020, that summer, we were the only green places. And we're only about two hours away from Toronto, the largest city in Canada. Uh, so they all came here. Uh -huh. And they went to the beach. And they got in line at four in the morning for the gate to open at eight <laughs> and spent oh. the day and went home. So there's a, that left a mark on the community for sure. So that's kind of what it's been like to yeah. live here. It's slowed down a bit um, since kind of, you know, the pandemic sort of ending. People can go other places, but tourism wise, it's, it's a very right. seasonal community in summer. It's very, very busy, and then in the winter it can get quite quiet, which is nice. I like the balance. Um, having a, the winter, I can, you know, not have to avoid people all the time, and I'm out trying to photograph, because that can be a challenge for sure. Right. So. Right, right, right. Well, I know that uh, I understand that it's important for you to be able to use photography to reflect your emotions and to use it as a form for self-discovery and therapy. And I'd love for you to tell us about what that even looks like in the field. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think 
I always wanted to be uh, creative. I always appreciated art and stuff like that, but I didn't really have a skill. I, I, I couldn't draw. I couldn't paint. I sucked at that stuff. Me too. Me too. Yeah. No, I, <laughs> maybe that's what most photographers are like. Eh? Although I know a lot of photographers that do both, you know, painting and drawing. But uh, so I think when I was getting used to the camera as a tool for expression, I didn't really know it at the time, but it kind of evolved into that. Um, so when I first started, I was just, you know, going out and everything looked cool, right? Click, 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 everything. Yay. It's beautiful. Um, right. Which it sucked, but. <laughs> uh, so, but after a while, I started uh, using it more as a balance in my life. Uh, you know, with work uh, being stressful, I started kind of wanting to work through that. Uh, through photography was just the only artistic expression I really had. So I guess at that point I started going out consciously looking for, I don't know, I guess things that reminded me of emotions that kind of had a, a look about them that could mean something else other than just what the item was in, in the photograph. Uh, so and I wasn't always conscious of it while I was taking it, but when I was in the field, I, I was attracted to this thing. I wanted to photograph it. Sometimes I didn't know why at first. Sometimes I did. Sometimes it was like a lightning strike, like, wow, this looks like, you know, an angry emotion or, or this is a sad emotion. Uh, other times you wouldn't realize it until you got back in your post-processing and go, yeah, I was kind of feeling like that while I was, while I was out there, so... I can see how this, you know, uh, would have happened. So, yeah, I think it's a mix of conscious and subconscious. Totally. So, yeah. Yeah, and was there a certain point in time in your process where you kind of made the realization that, hey, this can be more than just documentation? Yeah, there was. I think all photographers, probably yourself included, have that moment where you... Uh, you kind of switch gears right where you start off and it's all grand scene typically you know uh -huh. you're taking pictures of things at their face value right here's a picture of like you say a documentary right uh, and then you kind of get bored of it or it doesn't it didn't fulfill me as much as i wanted uh, did you go through that yourself at some point Oh, yeah, I mean, constantly still going through that, although I, I like to call myself kind of like an equal opportunity landscape photographer. Like, if there's a beautiful landscape, you know, and it is it is purely documentation and I can arrange the elements in yeah. such a way to make sense of it, like, I'm definitely going to capture it, but I find myself more and more gravitating towards, like you said, being more fulfilled by these more personal moments where you're interacting with the subject and you're having a conversation and you're trying to make sense of kind of what else it is. Yeah, exactly. I think it's it's more stimulating to your mind, right? It's like a puzzle going out there. Yes. And it's a lot less frustrating, I find, because as you know, when you, when you first start, you're getting up at 3, 4 in the morning, getting out to, you know, getting in there in time for sunrise and uh oh it doesn't pan out you know <laughs> there's always that crack in the clouds maybe it's gonna work uh 
and that's all it is though after a while it felt like i was just taking pictures of the sky with a few things in the foreground living where i live we don't have any mountains to kind of put in the foreground so it's usually shore and then lake so everything i was shooting was 14 <laughs> millimeters and pointed out towards the lake because it's one of the only places in prince Edward county where there isn't a bunch of stuff in the way so as you can see that it's right. kind of <laughs> it, it kind of got monotonous after a while um people loved it though right you know you post it online it's like oh the first thing they say wow look at that beautiful sky or look at those colors which is a great compliment but i didn't make right. those things the sky did that <laughs> And I just happened to be there. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and it doesn't really say a ton about you as a photographer. No, I didn't think so. No, I felt like it was, yeah, it was it was pretty uh, empty to me anyway. And like, and there's nothing wrong with other people going out and doing that. And there are photographers out there who sure, do yeah, scenes like that, and they are able to get an emotion in there anyway somehow, like that's a great talent yeah no for sure yeah i think there's a bit there's a there's a big misunderstanding i think in landscape photography community that somehow one is better than the other and i think it's it just boils down to like what fulfills you and what excites you and yeah. you know like what makes you excited and what makes me excited might not make someone else excited and that's okay no, it should be a very personal thing right so yeah yeah, so so Jason, why have you chosen nature photography to accomplish these goals? I mean, you could you could probably find some similar side effects by writing or or by, you know, I don't know, talking to a therapist. I mean, what what is around nature photography? <laughs> Thanks for the advice. No. <laughs> um <laughs> uh, you know, when I first started uh photographing, I didn't start with the grand scene exactly i was i did a lot of architecture actually um, the town i live nearby has got a lot of historical homes and buildings and i just go around picking out details of that like a cool old window and a door with some bricks or whatever uh, but i think that i required more solitude while i was working and that's part of the reason i think i reached out to nature but on the other hand, it was it was like living where I live, there is quite a lot of nature. And we're lucky that we have a lot of uh, publicly accessible places in nature where we can go out and, and be there. So uh, I wanted to do that. And I've always loved nature. The first thing I did at a high school is I, I went to forestry school for two years. So it's in my blood a little oh, yeah. bit to do it nature. But uh, yeah, it's, it's my love of nature, I guess. That's what became my muse so i don't see that changing <laughs> well it definitely it definitely comes through in your in your images i mean like i said in the introduction i feel like you have a you have a style that is very recognizable although we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later in the podcast but i definitely see that in your work yeah no that's I think it comes from familiarity of a place, and I don't want to bang on a drum. I've heard lots of people on this podcast and other places say the same thing. Nowadays, it's very fashionable to become more in tune with one location. I think the pandemic really accelerated that. Uh, I don't want to sound cool here, but I was doing it before the pandemic. So, <laughs> so 
<laughs> I, I don't travel a lot, so I, I kind of, I just, I, I was able to photograph around my home. And I, I, like I said, living here all my life, I'm very familiar with it. I know all the nooks and crannies, and I really, it, you appreciate a place after that. And uh, when you appreciate a place enough, you start getting to know it to a level where it's a more intimate in details like intimate landscape photography you're not just taking those surface photographs like we we're discussing before of the the grand scenes you're you're digging a little bit deeper uh, so that has been really great for me to uh kind of explore all those places uh revisiting often but also i always find new little spots so it's, it's never ending it's pretty cool I'm curious in regards to kind of when you make an image that kind of meets those criteria for you, how do you know that you've been successful in kind of coupling your interest in a subject with the final results in, like, how do you know that you've accomplished your goal as a photographer? Like, what are the ingredients that have to be present? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, it's hard to put words to, honestly. It's... And I'm sure you understand too. Sometimes when you go out, it it just clicks. You know, it's, it's partly your mood, uh, partly the weather conditions, the scene. Maybe you, you find something that's a little unusual out of place. Uh, that's what I kind of look for. Uh, seven times out of ten, I know when I've got something in the field that's got it. You know, I can feel it. You know that feeling, right? You know, it's like, yeah, this is, this is a, this yeah. is a banger. <laughs> um, that that is that is something I never ever ever would have thought Jason Pettit would say. That's a banger. <laughs> I know it's it's amazing what bad habits you pick up from the internet, isn't it? I've been ruined. <laughs> you heard it here first. Uh, but you know, I fail a lot too, as we all do. Um, and sometimes I don't know what's good until like you get back and you start processing the image and go, I thought that was a dud, but this is pretty good. You know, it's, it's not, right. it's not all the time. Sometimes you go, oh yeah, that, why didn't I realize that at the time? This is amazing. So yeah. And, and on top of that too, I, I'm sure you've had this experience where you post up something that you think is okay and you're not really even quite sure kind of what what what's what it's got going on but you know it's got something and then people will start commenting on it by saying like oh it reminds me of this or like oh my gosh you see that and and you're like oh okay so i was onto something i just didn't know what it was oh totally <laughs> totally i know how, what you feel like you're posting an image you're like well here it is whatever and then everybody goes crazy over it and you're like what am i missing <laughs> shouldn't i have seen that <laughs> i don't think it's that awesome but then you Sometimes you just need time to grow with an image too. And uh, I think people see things in images that you can't see because you're too close to it. So mm. that's the one thing I do like social media for that use. Depends on who's commenting. Like it's, I don't really care how many likes or comments I get. It's like, who is it? And do I like their work too? And do I think they know what they're talking about? <laughs> but uh, yeah. So right. I know exactly what you mean. So 
Yeah, well, maybe maybe this is a good segue to talk a little bit more about style. Sure. Because when, when we were first talking about doing this podcast, you mentioned to me that you think that many photographers have a unique style, but that they cannot necessarily see their own style. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I will start by saying I think a, a time I really started understanding I had a style more was when I read your article you wrote for on landscape magazine about me and your description of my work and then i'm like yeah he's right wow that's cool i never really you know had that in the front of my mind before so that was pretty neat um i don't know i think because i do recognize other people's style i recognize your style uh, all the people I'll recommend at the end, I can you know see their image and know that's theirs. Uh, I think with my own, like I'll go on my website and I'll review all my favorite images, and I, I'll, I'll keep looking for commonalities. And it's harder for me to to notice that. I mean, it's me who made them. I suppose that's a commonality, so it must be something that's my style right but it is hard for me internally to see it um beyond just like gravitating towards your own personal uh preferences like i don't like taking pictures of people so obviously that's not my style or i don't like taking really dark contrasty pictures so i don't do that but that's not really a style that's more of a theme i guess it's just a way your fingerprint on on your particular image uh, and i love it that people say i have one because I, I still have a hard time seeing it i mean i've only been doing this for five years really right so i've got a lot to learn so it's great well maybe maybe that's a uh maybe that's a challenge for the listeners to take a look at your work and then comment on what how they would describe your style yeah that's a good idea i think there's a a problem though like getting your own styles is tricky especially now with uh i mean we're bombarded by images all the time right so i think i worry about myself accidentally not on purpose stealing somebody's style because we see all these images and we like these images. How can you not be influenced by them? And there's nothing wrong with being influenced by them, but every now and then I'll catch myself kind of post-processing particular an image going, whoa, this seems a lot like, you know, this guy's style over here. Like that's exactly like that image I saw last week. So yeah, I catch myself sometimes. Um, I think that I'm sure, have you fallen into that trap too? every now and then oh yeah yeah all all the time and i'm curious for you uh does that stop you or do you like go oh maybe i should do something a little bit different or do you just run with it because i i typically will just run with it it slows me (laughs) down but i mean honestly if i like the image then i'm gonna i'm probably gonna keep it yeah um but i mean it's so hard to with all the images and all the photographers out there uh, begs the question has it all been done you know and i don't think so but it's it's getting really hard to 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 elevate yourself above the noise i think you know i still think there's just as many Mm -hmm. good photographers as there's always been but 
there's so much more, you know, photographers that are just throwing anything out there and we're getting lost. You know, it's the old adage, you can't, it's hard to separate mm -hmm. the wheat from the chaff. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, gosh, like thinking about judging for NLPA, you know, like probably at least 20 to 30% of the photos that are submitted, you're just like, wow, this is really good. <laughs> and And then it's like distilling that down into like the best of the best is like an incredibly challenging effort that is also quite painful because you're like, oh, I really like this photo, but this one that's very similar is just slightly better because of this, you know? And yeah, it's I can't. Like, unfortunately, that's the brutal reality. <laughs> I can only begin to imagine how difficult it would be to to judge a competition of that scale. Like, I, I would just, I'd probably just burn out, you know? <laughs> Um, after looking at the first 2,000 images or however, like, you know, what you get, 10,000 photographs in NLPA? Or those are the ones that made the cut, you know? Yeah, I want to say it was like 12,000 last year. Wow. Well, that's good that that many people are, are yeah. you know, getting on board with competition, especially one like that. I love that competition. Not that this is a plug, unless you want it to be. Yeah, you, <laughs> well, we'll put it in the show notes, but... Cool. Well, so we're talking a little bit about kind of being influenced, right? Yeah. And I'm curious, what were some of your earliest influences and why? Um, photographically or just how I got to where I am? Uh, it's a bit of both. I have to, to really go back yeah, to my... I think, I think I have to go back to my childhood growing up here as an 80s kid. I think you were probably an 80s kid too. You were left to your own devices, usually outdoors. So the first 90 years of my life, I lived on a farm and my parents were busy and they're like, so at five years old, I'm riding my bike around the farm all day long and poking my nose into the little streams and ponds or whatever. So you just started noticing details all the time. Um, and then over the years it accumulates and you just realize you've been seeing all these scenes all the time. Like, oh, and then it clicks and you go, hey, these scenes are cool. <laughs> But um, after I picked up the camera, I think one of my first influences was probably, like many other landscape photographers, Galen Rowell. He had some like beautiful, iconic images, but I think I enjoyed him more for his writing, maybe, than his images, because mm -hmm. he had a... He wrote really well about his philosophy on photography and the ethics of photography, and I learned a lot about that. I mean, I was still chasing the grand scene then because I think I was like, wow, I want to make images that do what Galen's images do, like just totally stop your heart. But then I was like, I, I can't do that here. <laughs> but so he, he was definitely right. one of the first and ones. He, he, he was kind of a freak show too. Like he would, like, I guess, you know, he'd get up at like two in the morning and he would climb like 3,000 meters and he'd be back before breakfast and everyone's like yeah. just waking up and he's like yeah I just went out and shot like a whole book's worth of images <laughs> yeah he was intense <laughs> he was really intense um, so I think I took what I needed to from him and then I kind of just evolved a little bit and I, I think what really changed 
it was about the same time I was getting frustrated um, not being able to make the images I wanted, which was the grand scenic images uh, like that. Uh, I, I couldn't do it. I was, and then I, I realized I was losing my focus on on what I picked up the camera to do. Right, I needed it as a form of. Uh, you know, distraction, therapy. I wanted something that would slow me down because um, sometimes I can be quite anxious and things are really busy and I wanted something I could go out and just be alone and chill with nature. So I lost sight of that and I was running around like crazy. So about that time, I don't remember where I picked up uh, a book by Elliot Porter. It was popular American photographer in the 50s, one of the first uh, color nature photographers. Uh, and he kind of showed me that the intimate, slow and small scenes could be, are good too. They're worthwhile. Um, and I think I really clicked at that point and I started uh, studying that kind of photography a lot more. Uh, you know, following photographers who were more of that style, uh, other writers that were doing that. I read a lot of old minor white stuff. Um, so that... Oh, a lot of people say that, like, intimate landscapes are like a fad or whatever. And it's like, well, Elliot Porter wrote The Intimate Landscape in, like, the 70s. So I don't think that's true. No, well, the, I forget. This Sierra Club published a book of his work. I think it was in the 1950s, uh, all color too, right. right? Which is big for the time. They took a big risk on it, but I guess because of that book, they ended up getting a lot more land protected. Um, they gave it to the right people who enjoyed it, and so that's a big win. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. And then, who are some of your influences now? Um, I think... Uh, and you're not allowed to use the names that you're going to recommend. No, later. I won't. <laughs> we'll add them later. Yeah, no, Guy Tal definitely was one. I mean, I, and that's true with a lot of people, and for good reason, right? I mean, he, he just... Uh, he's basically a philosopher who also uses a camera, right? He just happens to use the cameras. But, you know, great stuff. So I, I learned a lot from him. Uh, I, it's too many countless people I've met over social media uh, to, to mention, really, whose work I, I really love and I have learned from. So I, I could go on all day, I like that. But uh, yeah, so I think yeah, William Neal, that's, I've got a bunch of his books too. Another one, right? Classic, but still really great stuff. Yep. Yeah, and it's, uh, mm -hmm. I learned a lot about uh, portfolios putting those together from his work so that was really helpful so and that's that's the great thing about social yeah. media it's bad in many ways but if you're careful with it and you can curate it in just such a way you can learn a lot really fast and i think that's the advantage that uh newer photographers coming to the game have um, like I said, I've been doing it for five years, but, you know, say 20 years ago, even if you had begun photography, where would you see your influences? You'd see them in a magazine or right. maybe in a library book, right? Which, you know, you see the big, the big ones, the ones that, you know, were at the top of their game. You wouldn't see all the other great photographers that never had their stuff published. And so you'd never learn from that stuff. So not that I'm, you know. Yeah. 
yeah, in no, love with social media, but... No, that's a good point. I mean, speaking of people learning, maybe that is something people can learn from you by listening. You know, you've said that one thing that you do in your own work is to distill down your images uh, to be more direct and more clear. And I'm curious what that looks like and what are the benefits to that particular approach? Yeah, I think it goes beyond just, you know, they say looking at your borders, making sure there's no distractions in the borders. It's uh, it's another thing to hard put in the words, but it's the overall image um, and how it works together and how it kind of comes together. And, and where it comes together is the aha moment, you know. So it's it's clear and distilled, not necessarily... Uh, because of what's in the image or what's not in the image but it's the the voice of the image I guess you should say you know so you look at this image you go okay I, I get it you know that's the message so it could be a very chaotic image right that doesn't necessarily mean it can't have a direct message as well so yeah wouldn't you wouldn't you argue that that is much easier to accomplish when you're photographing intimate scenes versus the grand landscape? Um, yes and no. I think that um, with the grand landscape, it, the causes for distraction can be a lot easier to, to have in the frame. Uh, with intimate landscapes, you can kind of choose a little bit more what um, what you keep in your image, but it can be a lot more tricky too because if you're doing intimate landscapes and you're in a woodland area uh, as you know it's really tricky to, to find something cohesive so it's kind of like a mental puzzle putting all these things together um, so you can get that aha moment and you know many times I fail you know it's a lot of deleted images every now and then it works so yeah I think I think that's kind yeah, of what yeah. I mean when I tried distilling. I'm just trying to make it more and more tight uh, the more I learn. Uh, yeah. <laughs> if you can think of any other words that jump okay. right in. <laughs> no, well, yeah, no. Yeah, no, like, how is this different than minimalism? Well, yeah, there again, I think minimalism is is as little items, physical items in the image as possible, right? You know, you have a snowy field and maybe there's one tree. And I love doing minimalism too, when I can find it. But where I live, there's, there's not a lot of places you can do that. There's just trees and brambles and people everywhere. So it's it's different in that way. That's more of a visually distilled image where because of the items, it's distilled. Um, the message could still be there, of course, but it's kind of a different um, different way of looking at it, I think. Do do you have a particular image of yours that you feel like conveys this idea of dis distillation in a in a way that maybe we can show people? Sure. Yeah, I've got. I mean, on our YouTube channel, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I I do have a lot of images. I think that are like that. Uh, I name all my photos, as you probably know, because. Uh, it helps me convey the emotion of the image too and it's it's a personal item of mine so i feel like i need to name it like it's a kid or something weird like that but um i mean there's one image you know of probably from the competition uh adrift amongst the stars 
it's a bunch of oak leaves that are half frozen in a pond um, it's got black ice on top and snow is just beginning to fall on that but because of those little pieces of snow on the black ice and the leaves under it it really gave that sense of floating in in space kind of like like that so but it's a very busy image right there's a bunch of leaves all over the place there's a the snow it's it's not a minimalistic photo at all so that that's probably the right. one that comes to mind okay. right off the top of my head i was gonna yeah i was gonna say there's another image of yours that came to my mind um and i believe it's like it's like white tree bark with like these slashes in it oh, okay yeah i think they're just cracks in the wood but it almost looks and i can't remember the title of it but it for me that one is a good example of that as well that I think you mean burning inside. That's what that one's called. So yeah. Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, that's a piece yeah, of yeah. Uh, yeah. cottonwood driftwood on the the edge of the lake, and it's so bleached from the sun and and, but the rotting wood underneath was red. Like cause at a certain stage in the rot of of the wood underneath, it that gets that color. It's like an ochre color. So it looked like, you know. This fire was trying to burst out of the shell. So yeah, it's one of my favorite images, and and, and it was like a non-stressful image to take. It's so it, you know it was a long hike to get there, right. and I came across it. I was like, wow! And so I just set up shop there, and spent the next hour just playing with that log. You know, I love it. Yeah, no, I've, I I love it when you can find something like that, and it just captivates your imagination for a long period of time. For me. Those are the, those are my some of my favorite moments in nature when you can find something like that and then try to make sense of it. Yeah, no, it, you can really get into a flow state that way too, where it's just it, there's nothing else going on and you're just totally focused. Uh, speaking again of like images, like you know when they're gonna work. That was one of them because everything was just perfect right. for me. Right mood, right place, everything was great. So. That's awesome. And he probably didn't need anything special in terms of atmospherics or specific type of light or anything like that. It was probably, if I had to guess, pretty standard day. Yeah, it was, it was <laughs> cloudy. Uh, that kind of helped, I guess. Um, but other than that, no. It was just sure. put the tripod up over the log, get the yeah. camera on there. And I did focus stack it because being a log, it was, it was rounded. So, you know, the sides would have been out of focus. But other right. than that, yeah, it was a lot of fun. That's awesome. Well, let's dive a little bit deeper into this. I would love for you to tell us how you've made your home a lifelong photography project and how the outside world has come to interact with your hometown. Yeah, no kidding. Um, <laughs> The outside world certainly came. Um, I think I, I just, uh, after I started doing more intimate landscapes, I really understood that the amount of, of possibility and amount of potential is exponential and probably limitless, only limited by your imagination. Uh, so in, in combinations too, like a combination of the same place and in different seasons, uh, different light. And I just want to explore all of those options around my home um, and put them together and kind of document it as well. Uh, like many places, 
there's changing, especially in the natural environment. Um, and these become kind of memories of me. Um, and I'm very passionate about where I live. Not that I'll never shoot anywhere else, but I know I'm not going to run out of material. And like I said, it's a lifelong project. Um, hopefully it doesn't end anytime soon. <laughs> so I kind of keep going at it. Uh, I'm curious, what do you hope to accomplish with it? Like, is, is there a yeah. end in sight or is it just something that's captivated your attention or do you have something you want it to say? Yeah, I do. Um, I've been thinking towards that. I mean, right now I'm just mostly just capturing images and then the best ones I'm putting up on my website and people can buy a print if they want. Uh, but moving forward, I think I want to do something a little bit more involved with my imagery. I've been thinking about maybe doing an ebook. Um, considering most of my images come from Prince Edward County, I could probably have a bunch of different uh, themes or projects that could go in each one of those because I don't want to just do one that says Prince Edward County, boom, here's all my images. You know, you just, there's different themes. You do Lakeshore or you can do the forest, things like that. Uh, so that's something I've been thinking about. I've been seeing a lot of great ebooks out there um, by people and it's been inspiring me as well. Um, you've written a few books too, haven't you, Matt? You just did one on Colorado. Uh, just one. <laughs> hey, man, that's one's yeah, a lot. One. I've, I've, I've been in a book, the NLPA book. <laughs> yeah, no, books are an awesome way to showcase your work, but it is a tremendous amount of effort for sure. Yeah, no, it, it must be. I was fortunate enough to be included in a group of four local photographers for a book about Prince Edward County. Uh, it was some of my older stuff, so it was a lot of iconic shots, but it was a lot of fun going through the process. Uh, luckily, the heavy lifting was mm -hmm. done by the publisher, and I mostly just had to contribute images, and then they would select which ones are, were good and which ones they didn't want in. But I, it got me interested in the idea of doing a book, although I think an e-book would be much more accessible. Um, getting into a full bound book I mean, that's that's a lot of it's a lot of coin so yeah for sure I mean I think I think an ebook is a great way to kind of dip your toes in the process of kind of curating and organizing and trying to figure out what you how you want the book to work and what images and all that so mm -hmm. I think it's a great way to start yeah so I'm thinking about that I mean I'm not a marketing guru as a lot of us introvert photographers aren't so we're really great at you know making the product but not so good at you know letting people know it's there <laughs> i was gonna say it's almost as if there's a service that could exist out there for people to learn how to market their photography books yeah there probably is already i wouldn't call myself an expert by any means but yeah i understand the challenges of it i mean it's there's so many moving parts and yeah, yeah you can feel uh, really overwhelmed when you look into it you know, you look at other photographers' websites and there are all, all these things going on. It's like, wow, this is really good. What a, oh, man, my website sucks. It's just like, here's some images. Bye now. <laughs> so I, I want to like oh, yeah, dovetail something funny. else into that, kind of like a vehicle to, to get it out there a little bit more. Um, I do put my prints in local galleries sometimes. Around here we've got a lot of, it's a pretty, pretty vibrant artist community. 
Um, and that's one of my end goals. I love seeing my stuff printed. Uh, looks like you do too. You got a lot going on in the back there, uh, print wise. And, uh, so I mean, it's, yeah. And I, I just did a, uh, let's well, hopefully by the time this episode comes out, I will have released it all and everything, but I, I, I just embarked on this super ambitious kind of boneheaded, stubborn project. I thought it was a great idea and it is a great idea, but I really didn't realize when I set up, set into it that how much work it would be, but I decided to reach out to 12 different labs across the country and have them send me three different photos on three different mediums, all the same photograph. Yeah. And then I was I did this massive comparison based on like 11 criteria for each lab. And it's like a two and a half hour video that I put together, like walking through each product and each lab and pros and cons and oh my God. And, but yeah, I love, I love seeing, yeah. I love seeing photos printed. I'm interested when you did that, did you notice a big difference between the papers? Like, cause I know I have, but I'm interested because you probably tried a lot more than I would ever get a chance to. The good news, bad news is like, I didn't really evaluate a ton of different papers. I evaluated acrylic, white matte metal, and canvas. Oh, yeah. And it's based on what that company uses. So each company has a different method, different product, different papers they use for those things. So it's it's been all over the map. Yeah, it's, the printing is real. Another complicated thing, just like marketing, like getting it right, getting the right paper, getting a printer who can do it properly. That's... It's hard to find. So I'd right. be interested to see your uh, your video, I think. I'm probably interested enough in that kind of thing that I'll geek out to it a little bit. So yeah. I'll watch it. Well, you were saying you got a guy? Yeah, I do. Uh, I've got a who does my printing not too far from here, and he actually knows what he's doing. So it's nice to be able to go in there and sit down with him. He's really good at visualizing. You know, you've got your, your backlit image on your, your computer and then you're bringing it out into this four lit world. It's, it's not a simple translation of just hitting print. It's going to look totally different than you want it to. So he's a good printer is able to, to kind of bridge that, that translation between the two worlds. Um, I've, I've had prints done before from, you know, print houses and you don't know what you're going to get until you get it in the mail. And then half the time it's like, ah, this is not what I wanted. And so I recommend anybody yep. out there, if you can get a good close relationship with a printer so you can go in there and, and sit down and really get it done correctly. It makes a world of difference. Yep. 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 Well, I would love, I would love to talk to you about printing for like six hours, but I have a few more questions that are more on about you. And there's this something you mentioned to me in our correspondence that really struck me as a surprise. You don't strike me as the kind of photographer that uses a lot of pre visual pre visualization. Yet you stated to me that it's part of your approach. And I'd love for you to tell us what that even looks like in kind of your intimate landscapes and distillation type of image making. So when you say you don't think of me as somebody would use pre-visualization, what, what, what do you mean? <laughs> I'm curious. Cause yeah, I mean, when I think of, when I think of people that pre-visualize, like a couple of people come to mind, like my friend Kane, mm -hmm. when we go on trips, he's pre-visualized a ton of our locations already. Like he knows 
when the sun set, where the sun's going to set, like, oh, we got to be at this exact spot because, oh, the sun's going to light up that thing over there. And, oh, my God, you're going to have this great view of this and this and that. And Or, like, you have people like Josh Cripps who had that amazing photo of the, the eclipse with the camels. And, like, oh, yeah. that took probably a ton of planning and pre- pre-visualization. So, so I'm just curious, like, what does pre-visualization look like in your style of photography? Yeah, there's, I think I have, there's two kinds of pre-visualization. There's the one you mentioned, um, and I used to use it a lot more than I do now, where, you know, you really plan out an area, you know, which direction the sun's going to be coming up at that time of the year, and you're looking at the weather, and you're kind of coordinating everything, and, and I wasn't very good at that, you know, my imagination got carried away, and I had all these wonderful images in my mind built up, and then as you know you get out there it never matches uh, or very rarely does so you just end up going oh i put all that effort into this and i didn't get what i want so some people are better at it than me Uh, now when i use the word pre-visualization i'm thinking more of like uh, the end product so when i come across something in the wild i want to photograph i i kind of think about how I want it to look at the end um, either as a print Um, so I try as much as I can to kind of match that in camera uh, whether at spot metering to kind of make just the bright things come out and make the background really dark and moody or or making it brighter to make it a lighter image I try to do that uh, in the field because I, I kind of have an idea sometimes of how I want it to look in the end. Now I'm not always right. Sometimes I get back and I go in a totally different direction. But um, that's what pre-visualization means to me. So, And I think it's important in my work totally. to get my emotional point across um, instead of just taking an image of something cool and seeing what happens with it. That resonates a lot with me. I, I'm, I'm very similar to that. I remember like early on in photography, I was really hardcore night photographer. Um, I still do some, but not as nearly as much as I used to. But the in, in night photography, you have to do a lot of this, a lot of similar pre-visualization because obviously, you know, when you capture the image, it's not going to look like what you are envisioning it to look like when you're done. So you have to do a lot of secondary image capture or you know stacking or tracking or you know like capturing foreground elements at different depths of field and different exposure lengths and all that kind of stuff because you know kind of what you you want the end product to look like so i that yeah that totally resonates with me yeah no no, i haven't done a lot of night photography but that would be challenging to do particularly because you can't see anything until you've taken the image with a lot of the stars, like the Milky Way, you can maybe make it out faintly, but until you take that 30 second long exposure, you don't see what you're working with. So that'd be a lot of technical skill to also, right. to, to be able to realize what it's going to look like. So, and I'm still learning a lot too. Like, um, so it, this is something I've been only doing in the last couple of years. Um, but I'm excited to keep learning and, and getting better at it. So I never want to stagnate and stop and and not get any better. 
which can be frustrating too because um, you know when you're stagnating after a while <laughs> so which is a good sign you know, like I, I call it a plateau where you're just sort of banging your head against the wall and you can't get out of the rut but I also understand now what that means is I'm about to grow the the plateau of despair I don't know if you caught that article in lens work I didn't I don't know. know if you subscribe to lens work but I've been thinking about but it it's uh, it was a good article oh. yeah I think it's it's pretty much in line with what you're talking about it's actually Brooks Jensen wrote it it's a nice nice article on the plateau of despair which I think is exactly what you're talking wow. about yeah okay yeah no that's that's exactly what it is but you know once you realize that's what's happening you can kind of just go with it you know you just go oh, well you know don't give up keep trying eventually you'll find a way to kind of break through and and, and evolve your work so yeah so going back to this pre-visualization thing for me it came from a lot of trial and error and making a lot of mistakes and you know the more experience you have in terms of experimentation and figuring things out the next time you're out in the field you're like oh i know i remember now if i want this look i'm gonna have to do this this and this is that similarly how your pre-visualization evolved or was it something oh else? yeah for sure it's definitely been an evolution um i sucked at it at first um nothing was matching <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, nothing was matching what I wanted it to do, which was, you know, speaking of the plateau of despair, was frustrating and I was stuck. And I knew what I wanted. I could see it, but I couldn't do it. So, you know, yeah, you just, I had kept trying. And like you said, you you learn maybe one thing that first time you're out, but it's not enough. There's three or four other things you have to learn. So the next time you go, well, maybe you got two of those things right. And eventually more things click and enough of them click that you start getting something more meaningful. Yeah. So, and, 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 yeah. and I like the challenge. Yeah, it's, all... like it's hard. I want it to be hard. I don't want it to be easy or it will be non-fulfilling at all. So. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a big advocate of photography being a very practice-based art form. Like the more you do it, the more you're going to learn, the better you're going to get. And it takes tons and tons of patience and failure and and that's and that's it, actually an exciting part of the process i think all too often people get super discouraged and upset and they end up quitting or whatever mm -hmm. but i think you know like that's where the magic happens is in the failure yeah i 100 percent agree um i think is you know when you start becoming a photographer like you said a lot of people start and they get frustrated because they're not getting amazing results right out of the box. I mean, with almost everything in life, that's not how it works. So, you know, for the people who are able to kind of get through that, that's when you start getting the rewards. You start seeing results, you know. It's like learning to play the piano or something. You're never going to be great at first. But for some reason, people still think they are. I think a lot of people approach photography thinking it's easy. Honestly, it's like, right. here's this... I just pick up this thing and I point it at something, I push a button. Dead simple. Anybody could do that. Why can't I make what I... Right, how hard, how hard could it yeah, be? Yeah, and then they try it and go, oh, man. <laughs> or they don't realize, you know, they, that they're, they, they're, you know, they're not that good. You know, they think their stuff is great and it's not. I mean, we've all seen images from people who have a lot of followers, maybe, but their photography isn't great. But... Uh, so yeah 
Well, I have I have one more topic I wanted to talk to you about, and it's potentially one of the most interesting ones. So, I understand you're colorblind. Surprise! How has that impacted you as a nature photographer? Yeah, that uh, quite a bit, actually. I'm mostly red green colorblind, but I've got a mix of a bunch of other ones. So, the way I see color is uh, quite a bit different than other people. Um, it's more like nuances and small little differences. Uh, I, you know, my grandfather was colorblind too. Apparently, it's passed down the line every other generation. So I got it. Uh, at one point, I was so frustrated with it. I was almost just going to become a black and white photographer only. But mm. I looked at my images and realized some of them really needed color to tell the full story. So, um, in the beginning I was making a lot of, uh, there's a lot of casts to my images and I, and I apologize if there are every now and then in some of my newer images, <laughs> uh, sometimes. Hey, at least you have an excuse. I don't, I don't, I don't have an excuse. I have color casts in my photos all the oh, time. Oh, do you? <laughs> I hadn't noticed, but, uh, apparently I, I no, can't I see them maybe, less, you know, less, less now. <laughs> yeah. It's like, is that magenta? I yeah. don't even know what the color magenta is. <laughs> so I'm safe from that. I, <laughs> I was going to say. Perhaps you might not be the best judge of my color cast. <laughs> Maybe not. Maybe not. But, uh... <laughs> so, I didn't even when I first started, of course, because I was taking pictures of skies a lot, that's really challenging to get the colors right. You know, I was messing it up all the time. Um, I was doing silly things like uh, split toning, color gradients, and... and, and I'm sure... I, I, my, I'd have my wife check them sometimes, right? say hey you know what do you these colors and she'd be like what the hell's going on here and like why it looks great it's like no um tone it down I'm like okay so <laughs> that was that was frustrating for me but now what I've, I've come to learn is i just need to trust the camera sensor more so when i'm post-processing an image i tend to leave the colors alone oh I, other than white balance i i don't muck around with the colors uh at all i don't do any split toning anymore if i'm changing the values of different color channels it's usually just luminance right brightness or darkness that i can't screw up i'm very good at understanding tonal changes and in, in contrasts uh shapes patterns and stuff but color i got a so and it's been good in a way because it's it's kept me from getting too outlandish with uh my editing like we see so much these days these mm -hmm. bombastic images that are oversaturated and and too perfect to be true i decided i'd just go a little bit more natural and what harm could it do so that's 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 mm -hmm. the process I go through now. Um, I want to ask you a question about kind of in the field. So like earlier, we were talking about your photograph about the uh, burning from within with the white log and the red mm -hmm. um, underneath it. So how did you how did you know that it was red? How did you how did that come to? Well, be? it's different tones of red too. Like I just see them differently. I can still see red. Uh, but different shades of red, okay. different shades of red look different and some shades of red look green. 
this particular shade didn't. It looked a little bit more orangey than what you might see it as, but I, I kind of knew from experience that it was going to be a red. And sure enough, when I, you know, fiddled with the red channel in Lightroom, it changed. I was like, oh yeah, it is red. Good. <laughs> but it did look red. It, <laughs> it did look red to me in the field too. So, uh, but yeah, it's a, okay. So fall photography can so, be a challenge though. So it's, oh yeah, I bet. So sounds like you're relying more on kind of looking at the channels and like looking at the, I don't know, the number representations of colors and things like that to kind of give yourself a little bit more reassurance as to like what the real color of the image is. Yeah, I need extra guides when I do that. So you're right, the color numbers, you know, what number is true blue or, or whatnot. So um, not that I get into that too much anyway, uh, but uh other than changing the colors just through the vibrance or the saturation. Uh, yeah, so it's, I don't know, I guess some people will call it a handicap, so, but I don't see it that way anymore. I was just going to say, I, I almost feel like it gives you an advantage because you are forced to pay closer attention to true tonal vari variables and the real color of certain things that are in your images way more than most photographers probably even pay attention to and I'm guessing I mean I don't know for sure but I'm guessing that it makes it to where your images just have a better outcome overall I I mean I can't speak to how other photographers process theirs color wise but um, for me I feel that it's the right direction for my photography to go uh, give it a more grounded feel to it um, there's nothing wrong with the color brown you know, you don't have to make all your shadows blue. So, yeah. <laughs> so in that respect, um, I, I like, I think being a more grounded down to earth presentation suits my style more. I'm a pretty slow stay at home kind of mm -hmm. guy and, you know, loud colors and, and screaming photographs just aren't me. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, last question, Jason. Who do you recommend for the podcast? Yeah, this is uh, it was a hard little list to come up with. There's just so many people I could mention. Uh, first one I'm going to mention is Paul Wakefield. He's a UK photographer. Uh, he's a commercial photographer as well. He's done some pretty uh, famous album covers. But uh, his nature photography is amazing. The way he uses light um, is very subtle, and I learned a lot from him on, on how to use that in my own images. So, and I think he'd be really interesting to talk to about his background in, in commercial photography as well as his approach to nature photography. And then the other one, the Russian photographer Alexi, Alexei Karolov. I'm sorry, Alexei, if I butchered your name. Um, but he's a really imaginative small scene photographer, uh, that I really enjoy. Um, I'd like to hear how he, uh, he works. He does a lot of writing on his website. He's got a blog, so he's good at explaining himself. And, and last, uh, Donna Doyle, I think she's from Tennessee. Um, her images are very poetic. Uh, they're not necessarily nature photography all the time uh sometimes it's just everyday items but she's able to take these everyday items and transform them into something else i really enjoy so awesome awesome 
Well, Jason, uh, this has been fun. I think we have one more topic I think we can cover over on our Patreon bonus, which is all about AI. If sure. people aren't too sick and tired of talk- hearing people talk about AI, <laughs> we can cover that over there. But I just wanted to uh, thank you for taking the time to join us for this podcast. And again, I'm a big fan of your work and I encourage you to just keep at it. Thanks for having me on, Matt. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I've learned a lot from it, cool. too. Well, thank you to Jason for joining me on the podcast this week. I had a blast speaking with you. And if you're ever in my neck of the woods, I'd love to hang out. Keep making those inspiring images, my friend. If you enjoyed our chat with Jason, we recorded a little fun bonus episode for our Patreon supporters where we discuss our opinions on AI. Surely something to get the blood pumping. Patreon has become one of my main sources of income and it's how I survive. So if you can help out, it is greatly appreciated. Just go to patreon.com forward slash fstop and listen to support the show. Or you can find a link in the show notes. Seriously, any help that you can provide is appreciated more than you can know. Thanks again. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for stopping in, collaborating with us and listening. See you next week.